You're listening to the podcast of Church of the Holy Cross in Popper Bluff, Missouri, a community of faith learning to do life together in the goodness of God. For more information, you can find us online at holycrosspb.org. Our first reading this morning is from the book of Ezekiel, chapter 33, 7 through 11. You mortal, I have made a sentinel for the house of Israel. Whenever you hear a word from my mouth, you shall give them warning from me. If I say to the wicked, O wicked ones, you shall surely die, and you do not speak to warn the wicked to turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity. But their blood I will require at your hand. But if you warn the wicked to turn from their ways, and they do not turn from their ways, the wicked shall die in their iniquity, but you will have saved your life. Now you, mortal, say to the house of Israel, thus you have said, our transgressions and our sins weigh upon us and we waste away because of them. How then can we live? Say to them, as I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that wicked turn from their sins and live. Turn back, turn back from your evil ways for you will surely die, O house of Israel. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. Our second reading this morning is from uh, Paul's letter to the church of Rome, chapter 13. Owe no one anything except to love one another for the one who loves another shall ha has fulfilled the law. The commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not covet, and any other commandment are summed up in this word. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no wrong to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfilling of the law. Besides this, you know what time it is, how it is now the moment for you to wake from sleep. For salvation is nearer to us now than when we became believers. The night is far gone, the day is near. Let us then lay aside the works of darkness and put on the armor of light. Let us live honorably as in the day, not in reveling and drunkenness, not in debauchery and licentiousness, not in quarreling and jealousy. Instead, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our gospel reading this morning is from the gospel according to Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20. Jesus said, if another member of the church sins against you, go and point out the fault when the two of you are alone. If the member listens to you, you have regained that one. But if you are not listened to, Take one or two others along with you, so that every word may be confirmed by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If the member refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if the offender refuses to listen even to the church, let such a one be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I tell you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. Again, truly I tell you, if two of you agree on earth about anything you ask, 
it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, I am there among them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, I grew up in a family of ones who were bent towards entrepreneurship through whether that was from agriculture and farming to mining to a number of, uh, of ventures. I grew up hearing stories about how my, my grandfather um, came from another county and moved here to Butler County in the, in the 60s and through the 70s and 80s, grew his, his, his farm to, uh, to, 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 through great sacrifice and work. And the stories I kept hearing from my dad about how he did that, he would say, and that's how the sausage was made, or, or say some reference to that as, as making the sausage. You may have heard that saying, how the sausage is made, and it often refers to a time of hard work where hard things are taking place, where, where things are happening that aren't always pretty, but yet at the end, there is this, this thing that we can celebrate. It, it's hard work, how the sausage is made, something that uh, tells us that that process is dirty and grimy and something we don't want to think about. Um, so I got curious this week, where did this, where did this phrase come from? And I found this, it's often ascribed to a guy named Otto von Bismarck. He was the 19th century Prussian politician who was the first chancellor of the German empire from 1871 to 1890. So he probably knew something about sausage. He, he was also a strong believer in what's called the real politic. The idea that, that realism and practicality should outweigh ideology and emotion in political decisions. But it, it's not actually from him. He picked it up from somewhere else. What I found out is that it actually came from a guy, an American poet named John Godfrey Sachs, who's responsible for that other parable you may have heard about, about the blind men and the elephant, where they each grab a piece of the elephant and, and realize it's something bigger. And he made this story popular in the United States. And the quote actually goes like this. It says, laws, like sausages, cease to inspire respect in proportion as we know how they are made. They cease to inspire respect in proportion as we know how they are made. So what does this have to do with the text this morning? This morning we're hearing about conflict in the church. Indeed, over the last few weeks, we've been hearing a lot about the church and what life is like in the church. From, from a few weeks ago, uh, Peter's confession and the first word church we hear, the ecclesia, the first time in the gospels we hear this from Jesus, to last week where Jesus talks about the cross and what that means. And then this week we come quickly to conflict because conflict is certain in communities and it comes quick. Anytime there's more than two people in a room, or sometimes maybe even just one, we can be sure that some conflict is going to take place. See, conflict in the church is one of those things that we prefer to look away from, kind of like the sausage being made. We don't want to think about it because it's hard, it's grimy, it's something that we just, we just want to avoid altogether. Uh, but what we see here in this passage, in this gospel, in all these readings, is that restoration through confrontation is how a church and how disciples are made. One of my favorite sausages is chorizo. I don't know, maybe, maybe you've heard about it or you know about it or it's one of yours as well. But what I found out at one point was that chorizo is actually made up of salivary glands and lymph nodes. And I would bet if you're like me at all, well, if you're like me, you might try those things, but 
most of us would not seek out salivary glands and lymph nodes. And yet chorizo is this wonderful treat at the end, whether it's in your breakfast or at lunch or you go to your favorite Mexican restaurant and can find it. And much like chorizo and sausages, we don't want to know about it. We want to avoid it at all costs. But confrontation is the path that disciples are made and that the church is fused together. Biblical confrontation is all about restoration. Trust, injuries, and even enmity are bound to happen since communities of love are special targets of evil forces. These forces will tempt us to defer reconciliation or even to pretend that the fabric of our common life has not been torn, but the spirit of the crucified and risen Christ spurs us to seek out the one from whom we feel estranged. Get this, in order to establish communion with him again through a mutual exchange of heart. This morning, Jesus gives us incredibly practical steps to how to go about that. So this morning's sermon is going to be very practical. We're going to step into the grinding of the sausage a little bit and what that looks like and some of the pitfalls that we ourselves fall into when we pursue this process of reconciliation with a brother. But first, I want to tell you this. Uh, in 2011, a year after I moved back to Poplar Bluff um, from Joplin, Missouri, an F5 tornado hit downtown Joplin. It was over a mile wide. It had multiple internal vortexes, so it wasn't only the churning, but inside the tornado was turning as well. 162 people were killed as a result of this tornado. I was able to, to leave. Uh, pack up a trailer full of some supplies and drive out there that night and was there um, shortly after the, it was actually the next night after the National Guard had, had came in and taken control of some areas and set up some boundaries. And since I was a, a resident of Joplin, they allowed me in and the first thing I came to was a few big military tents that was the triage center. You know what a triage center is? It's where something has happened, there's been a, a tragedy, there's mass casualties, and they bring the injured in and they decide what to do with them. Okay, this person can go over here and get this kind of help. This person is beyond help, or you know, it, it, it cordons off and sends people to the area they need to go. Well, the first thing that we see Jesus doing here is telling us to triage the injury that we have experienced. Right there in the beginning of, uh, uh, in verse 15, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. First, we're going to walk right through the text. Is this person a Christian? Your brother. This is set within the context of the church. As Paul says later, who am I to judge those who are outside the church? Those are matters to be forgiven. Those are matters where we step in as a, as a person of Christ and, and forgive those who are outside the church within measure. Is this a sin? Many times what we bump into in these kind of grievances between brothers and sisters in, in the church are those of, of personality conflicts, not necessarily, of, ne necessarily a sin. That doesn't mean we do not have conversation and pursue our brother in this, but it, it elevates it to a different level when this person is in sin. We hear later on that if they, they repent and come back that we have gained a brother. This goes beyond even just a personal offense here. This is, as we hear in Ezekiel, if someone is in sin, it is our duty as brothers and sisters to pursue and to, and to, to confront and to lay out the way of life to brothers and sisters. 
But in particular, this is one in, in, in the gospel that is in the context of sin. So which tells me that if Jesus is telling us, your brother, if he sins against you, you got to go talk to him. Because he knows our hearts. So often we want to ignore these realities. We want to step back and shy away from the confrontation. And we're going to talk a little bit more about that in a minute. Third one is, is it against you, right? He also knows what we do. Well, you said this to so-and-so, and I'm really mad about that. That's not against you. That's not against me. That's, we have to distance ourselves a little bit from that um, when these sins are not against us. Have I initiated the conversation? Go and tell him, one-on-one, -on -one, you and him alone. Have I initiated the conversation? What do we do instead? In the age of social media, I see so many of my generation instead deciding to put a passive-aggressive post on Facebook and to expect that to handle it or uh, express our grievance in other ways. What is my motive? What is my motive? Because many times our motive in expressing our grief and our, 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 our anger towards our brother for sinning against us, the motive is not for restoration. It's instead for punishment. And we can punish our brother by going and airing our grievances to others around us. And honestly, at this point in the process, 95% of all confrontation would be handled. We go to our brother alone. When it's against us, we go and tell him, you and him alone. When we air these, we've gained our brothers. See, this is risky. Jesus is using a financial term here. You've gained your brother. There's risk in that. And I would imagine that when we read through this, it wouldn't be hard for us to think through relationships in our life where we've either bumped against this currently or we have in the past. But really where I want to spend some time at today is, is not just those steps and not the steps that come later, but that conversation. That conversation of when you go to your brother alone, because I think that is where we sometimes exasperate the problem. We make it worse or we shy away because we don't know how to go to our brother and confront a brother in sin. I've often heard it quoted that the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference. That's what we hear in the Ezekiel passage as well this morning. But if you warn the wicked to turn from their ways, and Jesus says later, or uh, God says later, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. The opposite of love is indifference. But the purpose of confrontation is always restoration. That's the big idea we're, we're, that we're circling around this morning. The purpose of confrontation is not punishment, is restoration. So how do we do that? Jesus gives us the big buckets of, of the process of when a brother sins, and then later he goes like, what if they don't repent? But what does that conversation look like? We're told from John that Jesus was full of grace and truth. John 1.14, it says, the law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. The law indeed was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ, he says twice in verse, chapter 1 of, verse, of, of John. So what I want to do today is introduce a quadrant, introduce an idea of what uh, the Gravity Leadership guys, some friends of mine, call the grace and truth matrix. See, we sometimes want to balance grace and truth. 
We want to, to give somebody a little truth when we think we're, we're going we're gonna to tell them off, right? We're going to give them the hard truth. Or we're going to forgive something. We're going to give them a little love. Or we, we try to balance somewhere in between that. Or maybe you think, well, my personality is just one of truth. And your personality is just one of... That's not what we hear of Jesus doing. He was full, in full measure of grace, and he was in full measure of truth. He balanced them perfectly. And there are... N- incredible numerous examples we could go through and spend a ton of time just looking at how Jesus lived out fully grace and truth in the Gospels. But what I want to do first is to look at ways that we miss this and to look at ways that that we get off on one quadrant or another. So with our fancy camera here this morning, I want to introduce to you the, the grace and truth matrix and what we have here, each quadrant of these except the one that God that Jesus fully lives into is full of grace and truth operates out of a position of anxiety of anxiety and stress so at the top we have high grace bottom we have low grace on the far right side is high truth lots of truth and on the far left side is low truth the first of these quadrants is 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 call out this is truth without grace So we go truth without grace. Call out. This is the call out quadrant. Low grace, high truth. And to be honest, this is one where my personality naturally tends. If you're familiar with Enneagram, I'm an Enneagram 8, which means I'm the challenger. I'm the jerk half the time. Um, This is a, a, a human effort to make something good happen. This is in a fleshly effort to take control of the circumstances and bend it to our will, which too often means we are bending our brothers and our sisters to our will. So maybe you've seen this show, Gordon Ramsay, are you all familiar with Gordon Ramsay? He's this celebrity chef and his whole career in television is now built on call out culture. He has Hell's Kitchen and Kitchen Nightmares where he goes in restaurants and literally just throws down, right? He goes in the back and starts calling out everything that's wrong and just making people feel small. He tears them down. This is what call-out culture does. We're achieving a goal is the main thing. Relational carnage and call-out culture is unavoidable. It overpowers others and disconnects us from one another in relationship. It creates a culture of hiding and of performance driven by fear, guilt, and shame. And so for me, there's a few questions that I ask myself as someone who naturally kind of gravitates to that end of the spectrum. It's this, what am I trying to prove? I can often notice when my anxiety starts to peak in in a situation or a conflict that this is my knee-jerk reaction. And if I stop, when I notice the tightening in my shoulders or the knot in my gut as I know that conflict is inevitable, what am I trying to prove in this circumstance? Or what am I trying to make happen at the expense of the person in front of me? Often the answer will be something that's good in and of itself, like I want my family to stop fighting, right? If you received our newsletter this week, I kind of explored what this looks like a little bit. And many times it's, it's with my children, a four-year-old and a two-year-old, and the, the constant bickering and whining and everything raises that anxiety level and starts to, to take me to this place to where I'm calling out others and trying to stop bad behavior, which, yeah, that's a good thing, but the way we approach it is not full of grace and truth. 
So if you, like me, live in this kind of quadrant, the first step for us is learning to, to see and express empathy, is one of healing and humanizing, one of the most humanizing things we can do. And it's an immediate, immediately actionable step for those of us who live in this quadrant of call-out. The next quadrant is grace, high grace, low truth. This is the hangout culture. Hangout culture, high grace and low truth. This one is, uh, is, is grace without truth. The highest concern for somebody who, who naturally gravitates to this one is getting along right? Making sure everything's copacetic. We're all happy. There's no one upset. We're going to ignore the hard realities of life and just make everything okay. This is where in churches we see a lot of religious talk, right? Well, how are you, brother? Well, I'm saved in the Lord, right? We hear all these Jesus answers in this surface relationship that just wants everything and everyone around us to be okay. But the grace that hangout culture seems to express isn't really Jesus's grace. His grace empowers others, but hangout culture keeps others dependent on us. Common words in this kind of relationship are codependency or enmeshment. If call-out posture creates a culture of performance and hiding, hangout culture creates one of pleasing and pretending. High grace, low truth. My wife and her family kind of live a little bit in this quadrant. Naturally, that's just the way they're, they're kind of built. That's their personality. This is their knee jerk, whereas mine, my knee jerk is, is to the other way. So you may have probably were raised in one of two families, right? My family was one that would come in and flip over the dinner table when there's conflict. My wife's family was one that just preferred to ignore it. If we just don't say anything, everything's okay and we can all be happy, right? And we're all learning to come out of these quadrants that we've lived in. And so if maybe this is yours. And the biggest factor for somebody in hangout culture is fear. So when you notice your anxiety rising in a situation, ask yourself these questions. What am I afraid of? What am I afraid of in this, this conflict? Let your imagination go to the worst case scenario and then ask the worst case scenario. Why is that so terrifying for me? and explore how you can trust God in that area of fear. So call out culture's fleshly. It's making things happen. Hangout culture is more fear-based. It's worried about what this conflict could, could do to the relationship. It doesn't believe that restoration could ever come through confrontation. So for you, it's establishing and maintaining boundaries is one of the best things you can do. Often caused by a leader with poor boundaries or who is uh, taking responsibility for everyone else's dysfunction. What is the first boundary in your life that you need to set up to start to move into calling culture? And the last one, as I said, each one of these operate in a, in a position of anxiety, high anxiety, and you might bounce between one or the other, but the one, once we live in call-out culture or hang-out culture so long, it's exhausting. It's exhausting. And so we bounce to this next one. Check-out culture. We just check out, right? For me, it's like, okay, pulling up my Facebook and I'm just gonna scroll and just mindlessly numb myself to everything that's going on because for me, I couldn't make something happen here. Or for somebody else, we couldn't love this situation enough to make everybody happy, so we just check out. Checkout culture is all about self-preservation. Instead of overpowering others 
or disempowering them, we simply try to preserve our own power for ourselves. And it goes into self-preservation mode. But that one's clearly not full of grace and truth. Low grace, low truth. So we've got these three quadrants that we naturally gravitate towards that is exactly the opposite of where Jesus enters into grace and truth. And if we are ever to have any kind of confrontation with family or a brother and sister in the church or to, to, to build any kind of community around relationship, it's going to be learning to follow Jesus in a life that is full of grace and full of truth. That's call-in culture. Is the culture that Jesus was building with his disciples where he called them both into relationship with himself and responsibility for themselves. See, you can't simply take call-out culture and add a little bit of grace to it. You can't enter into a relationship and call out and then say, well, I still love you, but, right? And you can't go into hangout culture and just drizzle a little bit of truth on it because that as well is just superficial. So what do you need to do in these quadrants? Who are you in these quadrants? Do you need to set up some more boundaries in your life or does it mean learning to see the other person across from you and learning to empathize in their, their, their place? Call-in culture, high grace, and high truth, where we sacrificially invest in the relationship while at the same time holding boundaries and responsibility. Again, if you read the email a little bit, uh, I, I talked a little bit of the way this works at our dinner table and how when my kids are battling and refusing to eat dinner, Instead saying, I don't like dinner food, I like ice cream, right? Well, so do I. Then I walk through a little bit how to empathize in those situations and how to step in and still hold the boundaries while affirming and celebrating things and then, and then celebrating the successes there. So this is the way we begin and can start framing our conversations and to start thinking about when we step into confrontation, where does my heart naturally go? Where am I going in this particular conflict? Am I checking out? Am I hanging out or am I gravitating towards call-in? And so that is the first step of that Jesus, if we read between the lines a little bit, how would Jesus have these conversations? It would be full of this kind of grace and truth. What happens when all our best efforts to love and step into relationship and responsibility don't work effectively and we still lose our brother? Let's take other brothers and sisters and initiate the conversation again. And then we hear about Jesus saying to take it to the church. We've been in a, a series of readings in the gospel to where we're hearing what life in the church looks like. This is the second time we've heard the word ecclesia, the assembly uh, in Matthew's gospel. And one of the few times we hear it at all, the assembly, the gathering, the ecclesia. And what's really important is that we put this into context because this is a hard text when we get to this point. We don't understand why Jesus would say things like bind this to them, where two or three are gathered, binding and loosing. And church discipline becomes one of those things that's like the sausage being made that we do not want to think about. It seems very unloving. But when we look at the context of where this is put, we can understand that somebody is always going to be bound with a burden. 
Just before this, Jesus talks about the little ones in the 99. The children, he says, let the children come to me. And then tells the parable about the 99 sheep and going to find the one that has been lost. And then immediately after this passage, we hear Peter asking Jesus, but Lord, how many times should I forgive? What we understand is that sin always leads to suffering and separation. Someone is always bound with a burden. So to discipline is to loose the burden, to release the burden from the little ones among us and to bind it to the offenders who are hurting the little ones. Listen to it this way in verse 17 in the same chapter. I'm sorry, in the previous, let's see here. Step down to, uh, where am I at? Now I'm losing my spot again. Verses five to seven. Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me, but whoever causes one of these little ones to believe in me to sin, it would be better for him to have a great millstone fastened or bound around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Woe to the world for temptations to sin. For it is necessary that temptations come, but woe to the one by whom the temptation comes. The next passage is the parable of the lost sheep. It's the one of the little one who has been, who is, who has been ostracized for the, from the community, who has been bound with the burden of being removed from his community, to whom Jesus says he goes. Too often, our neglect to step into conflict and relationship puts the little one in the sausage grinder. It's the injury of the, those most vulnerable around us that we ignore and they carry the burden of the responsibility when the offender is left to frolic in the sin. This is about restoration for all of us and especially those who are the little ones among us. I've been part of this process twice. Something that grieves me deep in my bones. And each time It was a, a process that was something that none of us would have ever excused the sin of, that required an offender to step in and to make amends for a, 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 a something that they had done physically to another person. And to sit across the table from someone that I knew was a brother in Christ and to lay out the offense while a wife was sitting at the other corner, crying because of the offense. And for them to agree that this was sin and that they had damaged a family and to say, I don't care. I'm going to continue in this path. It was unlike anything I've ever seen. But stepping into that hard situation to where sausage was being made one way or another, allowed us to come alongside a little one in the faith, the church to be strong for them. This is what this procedure is. This isn't kicking somebody out of the church for petty offenses and personality differences. This is coming alongside the, the smallest brothers and sisters in our community when they have been, been wounded deeply and their offender refuses to make amends. 
but the purpose is of confrontation is always restoration. Jesus says, they should be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. These are people that are outside the covenant, but is one for whom we continue to pursue for restoration. They must not remain permanently outside, but one that we pursue. When the church disciplines Christians, in this way, the world will be more discipled in the way of Christ. Jesus says it this way, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven, and I am there among them. God's commands are never detached from his character. It's not just about binding the sin on somebody, but it's also about loosening. Restoration is the point of confrontation. So just as Jesus says, where two or three are gathered, I am there among them. He is there in the community making sure that justice is being carried out in his community. But he's also there loosening. We prayed this morning, we're going to pray here in a moment, the prayer of Chrysostom, where two or three are gathered, binding and loosening. Jesus says in 1 John, if we confess our sin, he who is faithful and just will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means if we have something in our life, something in between a relationship that we have placed a burden on somebody else, we have offended against the community, we are in sin and have been running from God. Christ Jesus says that he is faithful and just. And when we bring those to the community and lay them down, Jesus is there among them, among us loosening the effects of the sin, making wide the path that leads to reconciliation and a thriving community. If we confess our sins, there is promise of freedom and reconciliation through the community of Christ. We need not be bound by our old ways nor the burdens of damaged relationships. When Christ through our community declares that we are no longer bound by sin, we are no longer bound by sin which opens us up to this kind of reconciled community to where we can step into the hard places and hard conversations and Jesus will be there among us, molding our hearts and the hearts of our brothers. This is the way that disciples are made, not by checking out, calling out, or hanging out, but by stepping into call in and calling each of us into relationship and responsibility. So this morning, as we, we pray the prayer of Chrysostom here in a little bit. Think about what that means for you. When we pray about binding and loosening, what have you been bound with or what have you held on to unforgiveness for and bound to somebody else like a millstone without stepping through these, 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 this process, without stepping into relationship? And if you've been loosed, lay that down at the feet of Jesus as well. Because where sin has abounded, his grace abounds all the more. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for coming among us in the person of Jesus Christ. And Lord, we thank you so much for being not an abstract, ethereal God, but one that has come near, who desires not the death of sinners, but instead has given us a process through which we can be reconciled not only to, to our neighbors, but to you, Lord. We ask this morning that you would be here among us, that you would loosen the chains that bind us, and you would lead us into new life 
in your ecclesia, your assembly of believers, of sausage makers, Lord. We pray all this in the name of Jesus Christ, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God.